Welcome to this verse-by-verse Bible teaching from Calvary Queen Creek in Arizona with Assistant Pastor Darrell Logan. We hope you're blessed by listening. Romans 10.17 says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. For more information, please visit calvaryqueencreek.org. We are going through a series entitled All About Jesus, and so you see the slide there on the screen. So once again, all about Jesus. And tonight uh, we're going to cover part three. And part three is the character of Christ, the character of Christ. And so let's go before the Lord in prayer uh, before we get into the word of God. Father God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. I ask you to fill us afresh with your spirit, empower us for your work. I do pray for the gift of teaching I pray, Father, to be able to rightly divide your word of truth and that each and every one of us in this building or viewing online, that our hearts will be softened and receptive to your word and the work you desire to do in us and through us uh, by your Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, we love you. We thank you. We give this time to you, praying that you will be honored and glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Part three of All About Jesus, the character of Christ, the character of Christ. And so I want to start by defining uh, the term character. The term character is the combination of mental characteristics and behavior that distinguishes a person or group. It's one of the attributes or features that make up and distinguish an individual. And another definition says It's the set of qualities that makes a person, a group of people, or a thing different from others. And so we're looking at the character of Christ. We're looking at things or qualities or perhaps attributes, characteristics that make Jesus, that show that Jesus is different from anyone else, anything else. Whatever people try to compare to him, whomever people try to compare him to, he's just different. And so we're going to look at his, once again, going to look at his character. And so there's many things we can point out about Jesus. And there's going to be quite a few that we're going to point out tonight. Uh, But we're going to look at many of the characteristics about Christ, the qualities, the attributes about Christ that stand out um, the most, that are really obvious to us. Uh, But remember that everything that we see in Jesus Christ actually reveals something to us about the Father. Because remember, in John chapter 14, verses 7 through 9, uh, Jesus told his disciples, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip, one of his disciples, said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. It'll work for us. It'll be, we'll be fine with that if you just show us the Father. And so Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? So remember everything we're going to cover tonight that is revealed in Jesus and his character, these characteristics of Christ. Remember, these, um, these things also reveal something about the Father, the God we cannot see. 
So Jesus reveals the Father to us. He is called the capital W, Word of God. And so when you think about words, um, you know, words are expressions of our thoughts. And so we can write them. We can speak them. They, they express our thoughts. That's what words do. And Jesus being the word of God, he is the clearest and most full expression of God, the father that there is. So if you want to know how the invisible, how, how the invisible God is, how God, the father is, you look at Christ. So keep that in mind as you go uh, through the study tonight. Uh, but yeah, we are covering the characteristics and attributes of Jesus. And the first one is that Jesus is loving. Jesus is loving. First of all, Jesus loves the father. The scripture says that, but Jesus also loves his own. He loves his pupils, his students. Some people know them as disciples. We're his followers. And for example, uh, Jesus spoke with a rich young ruler. And you remember that this rich young ruler, he came to Jesus and he wanted to know what he must do to inherit eternal life. And so in the gospel of Mark, it it records uh, part of Jesus's response. And and in part of Jesus's response, um, you see there on the screen, Mark chapter 10, verse 21, it says that Jesus looking at him and I underline this loved him. And said to him, one thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come take up the cross and follow me. See, Jesus wasn't looking down on this rich young ruler, but it says he looked at him. He loved him. And then Jesus said what he said to him. That's because Jesus is loving. The Bible says that God is love. Jesus is God. Therefore, Jesus is love. He's loving. So that's characteristic or attribute number one in regard to Jesus. But also, uh, Jesus is merciful. You see, mercy, that word mercy means kind, gentle, or compassionate treatment, especially towards someone who is undeserving of it. And if you look up the word in a dictionary, if you look up mercy in a dictionary, you'll notice that the word pity and compassion are listed as synonyms of mercy. They mean about the same thing as mercy. And so a person who is compassionate, it means, of course, that they have compassion. And compassion, by the way, is deep awareness of the suffering of another that, that is accompanied by the wish to relieve that suffering. So they don't just observe the suffering. They don't just um, know about the suffering, but they have this desire to relieve that suffering. That's compassion, pity, mercy. And then in the Greek, there's a word for compassion that, that the following verses I'll share with you contain. But this word for compassion, this Greek word, it means to be moved as to the bowels. In other words, to be moved as to one's intestines, hence to be moved with compassion. You see, the bowels or the intestines were thought to be the seat of love and pity. They believed that's where love and pity or compassion came from. 
from the intestine. And so the Greek word for compassion in the following verses, um, that, that's what it's referring to. That's what it means. And so Jesus, of course, displayed compassion many times. And I'll just point out a few examples. For example, in Mark chapter 1, verse 41, he had compassion on a leper who wanted to be healed or cleansed. And a person who's a leper, L-E-P-E-R, he has leprosy. This person was unclean. He couldn't be a part of the uh, religious community. He was ceremonially unclean. He had to be separated from everyone else. He was an outcast. And then another example of Jesus showing compassion is in a situation involving a widow from a city called Nain. Uh, Because in that city where this widow, widow was living, she had a son and it was her only son. Jesus had compassion upon her, according to Luke chapter 7, verse 13. And he raised her son from the dead. In another example, the scriptures tell us about the multitude that followed Jesus to a a deserted place. And this deserted place belonged to Bethsaida. And so Mark 6, verse 34 says, And Jesus, when he came out, in other words, Jesus, when he stepped from the boat or when he went ashore, he says he saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. So uh, in other words, he was moved to his bowels, to his intestines, in other words, because, again, that's where they believe the seed of uh, love and pity to be from. So he had compassion upon the people because they just look lost. They look like they needed some help. And I wonder tonight if you look at people like that, people in the world like that, 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 hey, you need some type of leadership. You need spiritual leadership, not me per se, but you need spiritual leadership from the Lord. The scripture tells us that the Lord is my shepherd and and our prayers that people will get to know that shepherd that that we find out about in Psalm 23. Then Jesus brings some clarity to it in the in the New Testament. He tells us that he is the shepherd and there's a word that goes in front of it, but I don't want to touch on it yet because we'll get to it later. But then also in regards to compassion and and mercy or pity Uh, We we see a situation in John chapter 8 with this woman who was caught in adultery. And so these these religious leaders and these other folks with them, they supposedly caught this woman in adultery. But conveniently, they didn't bring the man. They only brought her. And they wanted to see her stoned according to the law. And so, yes, in the law, the adulterer and the adulteress were both supposed to be stoned. For example, it tells us that in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, as well as in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 22, she was supposed to have been stoned. But we see there that Jesus displayed pity. He displayed compassion. In other words, we're talking about being merciful. Jesus displayed mercy to this woman who was caught in adultery. In other words, he did not give her what she deserved. He didn't carry out what the law required in the sense of um, stoning her. 
And remember that the man technically was supposed to be stoned as well. And so when we think about this, when we see this example that I just shared with you and other examples that I just shared about his compassion, his pity, his mercy, I suggest that we praise him, whether in public or in our quiet time. We praise him for his mercy toward us because we deserve death as sinners. We deserve death, but God in his mercy did not give us what we really deserved. The scriptures tell us that the wages of sin is death. According to Romans chapter six, verse 23, the wages of sin is death. But God in his mercy. When we receive Jesus, our personal savior and Lord. And did not give us what we deserve. We have a relationship with him. And if we were to die today as people who put their trust in Jesus for salvation. We would we would be before him. We would be in eternity, spending eternity with him and not separated from him for eternity in a place called hell. That's mercy. But also Jesus is forgiving. You see, forgiveness is actually, and this is why I put it after mercy, uh, because forgiveness is an extension of mercy. And of course, uh, Jesus is forgiving. And and one definition of the Greek word behind uh, forgive is to release a debtor. In other words, not to press one's claim against him to, in other words, forgive to release His debt. And we were, of course, in debt. We were in spiritual debt and we could never pay it. But Jesus paid the debt for us with his blood, with his precious blood on that cross on Calvary or Golgotha. So Jesus paid the price. Allowing everybody or making a way for for all of us to receive forgiveness. And so it's available to all, but. Only certain people who repent and put their trust in Christ will actually benefit from this forgiveness. We all need to be released of this debt. And so if anybody goes to hell, it's because they, they, they refuse the cure. Jesus Christ. God, the father provided the cure, had the debt paid through his son. But there are some people who just turn up their noses at them, think they can do life better without them. That's so far from the truth. But he's willing to remit our debt, to wipe it all out, to wipe the slate clean, available to all. And there is an example of Jesus forgiving someone. For example, in Capernaum, when he went into a house, the, the, the scriptures tell us that You know, the people started gathering together. So Jesus started, he started preaching to them. And as Jesus was preaching, the scriptures tell us that there were four friends who, who went on the roof and they uncovered the roof and they let down their paralyzed friend in front of Jesus so that he could be healed. But then Jesus, it says that when he saw their faith in Luke chapter five, verse 20, it says that he said to them, man, your sins are forgiven you. But, but wait a minute. We brought him before you so that he could be healed in his body and, and will be able to walk again. 
But Jesus, first and foremost, met his most important need, which is to have his sins forgiven, to to clear him of the debt of sin in his life. And in fact, forgiving others is so important to Jesus that, that Jesus once told a parable about an unforgiving servant in order to remind all of us how much we have been forgiven by God. So this unforgiving servant had been forgiven by his master, but then he did not return the favor again, uh, you know, to someone who had owed him less than what he owed his master. Jesus told that parable. And so the lesson from that is that we should pass on forgiveness to others. This topic of forgiveness is important to Jesus because he himself is forgiving. It's a part of his character, but he is also truthful. The scriptures tell us that Jesus says that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can get to the Father but through him. See, John chapter 1, verse 14, it says, and the word became flesh, speaking of Jesus, and he dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So in other words, we beheld his excellence, his splendor. We beheld his majesty, the majesty, the the glory of the only begotten. We talked about what begotten meant last week, monogonase. That's the Greek word. It, It means that he's the unique son of God. Always had a relationship with the father, always will. Jesus always existed. He is the only begotten. Unique son of the father. He's full of grace and truth. And of course, in this case, I'm focusing on truth because we're talking about that characteristic of him being truthful. You see, Jesus lived an honest life, a genuine life. He taught the truth and then he spoke the truth to people. In fact, um, even when he demonstrated mercy towards the woman who was caught in adultery in John chapter eight, he still spoke the truth about her sin. He still spoke the truth about her sin because after all of her accusers had left, Jesus asked her, who who is condemning you? They all left as he was writing on the ground. We don't know what he wrote, but then you see it there in John chapter eight, verse 11. She said, no one Lord. And Jesus said to her, notice that yes, he had mercy But now he's telling her the truth about sin. He says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. So he didn't take her sin lightly. He spoke the truth about her sin. In other words, in that command that he gave to her, there is still a truthful acknowledgement that sin is bad. You, You can infer that here. You can take the information that we see here in the scriptures and say, okay, if he's telling her to go and sin no more, that means He's acknowledging, he agrees with the fact that sin is bad. It's not helpful to her. It's destructive to her life. But he still had mercy, still had pity, still had compassion upon her. But since we talked about talking about him being truthful, he's being honest with her, still speaking the truth to her. Go and sin no more. Whatever you were doing, that, that, that was sin. Stop that. Don't do it anymore. You're forgiven. Move on. Start living for God. And in fact, 
As we go through the scriptures, especially in the gospels, we see that Jesus was honest about the reality and the severity of hell. He was honest about that. He didn't sugarcoat it. He warned us about hell. He was even direct with the Jewish religious leaders about their hypocrisy. He didn't shy away. You're hypocrites, he told them. He was honest about that. He's been truthful with them. He was also honest about the trouble and the persecution that his followers would face. He didn't sugarcoat it. Hey, everything is going to be peaches and creams. You're never um, going to be broke again. He didn't tell his disciples that. No, he warned them. He was honest with them about the trouble and persecution that they would face. In fact, he even told Peter how he was going to die. He was honest with him. It's a part of his characteristic, part of his character. He's truthful, but he is also gracious. And this is where we go back to John chapter 1, verse 14, and finish what we started here. And once again, and I'll start at the beginning again, it says, And the word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. This time I underline full of grace. Full of grace. He is gracious. And grace, of course, is God's undeserved favor or kindness. It's undeserved. So mercy is us not getting what we really deserve, which is judgment, which is death, which is separation from God for eternity in hell, an eternal quarantine, if you will. That's mercy, us not getting what we really deserve, but God's grace is us getting what we do not deserve. We can't even earn it. His undeserved favor or kindness, and Jesus was full of that. He was full of grace. He is gracious. In fact, if you read Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, this is how God described himself to Moses. Gracious. Once again, since Jesus is God, of course, he's going to be gracious. He's going to demonstrate that. But also, we can't miss this. Jesus is holy. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 26 and 27, we read about that attribute of him being holy. It says, for such a high priest, of course, it's speaking of Jesus. He was fitting for us. Who is holy? I underline that. Harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. And so he didn't have a sin nature. He never sinned. He's different from the rest of humanity in that, once again, he never sinned. He remained pure, morally pure, holy, separate from sin. And it says in verse 27, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. It's not like any other high priest. He comes from a higher order of high priest, the order of Melchizedek. The, the, the high priest that God had ordained will come from the tribe of Levi. And then you had to be from the lineage of Aaron. Jesus was not a part of that tribe. He was from the tribe of Judah. But he, had a, he was from a higher order of priesthood. We don't need a human priest. 
Jesus is the only priest that we need. You see, the high priest would represent man to God and represent God to man. Jesus does that perfectly because he's both God and man. Truly God, truly man. See, Jesus being holy is morally pure. He's not corrupted by sin. He's set apart from evil. And this is so true that even the demons knew it. Because even the demons called him the Holy One of God. And so, shame on those people who would go on TV. And some, and I even saw a little snippet, a little video online of someone insinuating that Jesus sinned. How do you know, uh, how can you not know that Jesus is holy, that he never sinned, but the demons acknowledge it? But then he is good. See, speaking of that rich young ruler that we touched on earlier, he addressed Jesus as good teacher before asking Jesus what good thing he can do to have eternal life. And of course, Jesus responded by saying, why do you call me good? No one is good, but one that is God. We touched on this a little bit last week. But as a reminder, Jesus is not saying that he wasn't good, but he wanted that young man to think about the implications of what he was saying. There's only good, one good, that's God. Think about what you're saying. And so because we establish that Jesus is the son of God, in other words, that he is God. Therefore, if God is good, that means Jesus is good. Jesus uses good, in fact, to describe himself as the good shepherd. He is good in his nature. We are not. We're sinners by nature. That's why we need a savior. God is that he's just good. It's just a part of him. It's intrinsic to him. And I would just encourage you, if you haven't already, to taste the goodness of the Lord. As it tells us in Psalm 34, verse 8. It says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good and blessed is a man who trusts in him. Give him a try and see how good he is. Some folks think that those drugs that they partake in is good. They think the alcohol that they drink day after day is good. They think that partaking in sexual relations is is good. It's the best thing ever. But, oh, taste and see that the Lord is the one who is intrinsically good. It's good in his nature. There is no one like him. But then Jesus also is humble, as it clearly points out to us in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, for example. It says, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and he became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So once again, although Jesus had always been God and although he was always equal with the father, 
Scriptures tell us that he became a man and therefore he lowered himself. He humbled himself and then he obeyed the will of the father, even to the point of death. So Jesus is truly God, of course, but he decided to become a servant. He decided to give his life as a ransom for many, as he tells us in Matthew chapter 20. That he didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. As a servant, he humbled himself. So humility is a characteristic of Christ. And there's another word, meek, we can use to describe him. It's very closely related to him being humble. You see, one who is meek has a mild disposition. Their disposition is their usual mood. And so Jesus, he had this mild disposition. He had a gentle spirit. And so gentleness or meekness is the opposite of self-assertiveness and self-interest. You see, the gentle person is not occupied with self at all, according to one definition. And there are some people who have described meekness as strength under control. Jesus is almighty. He has strength, of course, but it was strength under control. He is meek. And then there was one article and talking about the difference between meek and humble. It says that everyone who has humility has meekness. And every person with meekness is likely also humble. It says that meekness is contrasted with humility as referring to behavior towards others. While humbleness, humbleness refers to an attitude towards oneself, but is still seen by others. See, in Matthew 11, verse 29, Jesus says to take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle. In other words, he's saying I am mild. I am meek. This is my attitude towards others. He's meek. He's gentle. He's lowly or humble in heart. And he says, and you will find rest for your souls. But as we continue to read the scriptures, as we continue to read the gospel accounts of Jesus, of his life and of his ministry, we, we see that he was a man of prayer. He was prayerful. Once again, you find various examples with him praying all night. There was another time where he prayed before daylight. He was a man of prayer. He prayed before making important decisions. Like, for example, before choosing the 12 disciples, Jesus spent lots of time in prayer. He was a man of prayer. He even prayed before going out to different towns to preach. He even prayed after moments of great success in ministry. For example, after feeding the 5,000, Jesus prayed even in a moment of great distress, like in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so he was a man of prayer. But then Jesus was also a worker. He was a worker. And, and that's one thing I like about the book of Mark. It goes really quick. It shows Jesus as a servant. 
It moved, you know, you just see action from beginning to end. See, he was a worker. John chapter 9 verse 4 says, and this is Jesus speaking, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. He says that the night is coming when no one could work. And so Jesus took advantage of every opportunity that he had to do the work that his father wanted him to do. So he was a worker. There was even an instance in, in Acts chapter 10, verses 34 and 38, where he is preaching to Cornelius and to his household and to his friends that were gathered there. And, and the reason Peter went there is because he, w- he was summoned by Cornelius, a Gentile, a Roman centurion, who was a captain of a hundred men. He was summoned by him at the direction of an angel of God. And so when Peter got there, he began to preach. And so in Acts chapter 10, uh, verse 34, it says, Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, Whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. That word, you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power who went abroad doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him. So noticing, especially in Acts 10, 38, how, how Jesus went out in the power of the Holy Spirit and, and he went about doing good. He healed people. He preached and so forth, delivered people who were oppressed by demons or by the devil. He did that. So he was a worker doing the father's work, whatever the father called him to do, whatever the father wanted him to do. And therefore, Jesus was obedient. It tells us in John chapter 8, verse 29, it says, and he who sent me is with me. He says that the father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. So Jesus obeyed the father. And what this shows is that Jesus is submissive, which is another characteristic of Jesus. He's submissive. And so there is a Greek word for submit. This hupotasso. Hupotasso, it means to arrange under. It means to subordinate, to obey, to be subject. And this word for Submit, this Greek word behind submit, it was actually a Greek military term. It means to arrange, that is, troop divisions in the military fashion under the command of a leader, to arrange under. And then in non-military use, it was a voluntary attitude of giving in. Notice it was voluntary, cooperating, assuming responsibility, and carrying a burden. That describes Jesus. He was submissive to the will of the father, but people make this word submit or submissive a dirty word today. But Jesus was submissive to the father, to the will of the father. And so in John uh, chapter five, verse 30, we see this. 
He says, I can of myself do nothing. He says, as I hear, I judge. And my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. He was submissive, willing to submit to God the Father's will. And so when he added humanity to his divinity, when he emptied himself, so to speak, as we see in Philippians chapter 2, became a man. What he did was voluntarily, temporarily set aside the, 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 the independent use of his God abilities, if you will, of his divine prerogatives. He set them aside temporarily and decided to depend on the father. And so here you see Jesus saying this in John chapter five, verse 30. And so Jesus He showed his willingness to submit to the will of the father, especially in the Garden of Gethsemane. And there you see a very famous scripture there. And you can see this in other gospel accounts as well. For example, in Mark 14, verse 36, he said, Abba, which which is an Aramaic term for father or papa. In other words, daddy. So you see this close relationship So he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me, this cup of wrath, this cup of suffering and death. Take this from me. But he said, nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. I'm willing to submit to your will. Whatever you want me to do, I'm willing to submit. I'm willing, in other words, to arrange myself under your will. And so submissiveness is... Another trait of Jesus, which means that he was selfless as well. And I say that because a submissive and obedient person is not selfish, but selfless. And of course, Jesus was selfless. He was selfless because he didn't think of equality with God as something to be grasped to, to cling to. See, he he, he knew he needed to come down from glory as the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. He knew he needed to come as that lamb so that sin would be dealt with, so that sin would be taken away, so that the price would be paid in the form of his blood. He knew that, and so he didn't see or think of equality with God as something to cling to. He didn't just hold on to eternity to glory. He came on a rescue mission. He came to seek and save the lost. That's mankind. Men and women. Children. All sinners. He came on that rescue mission. And so in this selfless act. We see him humbling himself, taking on the form of a bondservant. And in fact, there is another example of him being so selfless that even in a time of great suffering, he was looking out for somebody else. Specifically, he was looking out for his mother in this example. Because in John 19, verses 26 and 27, it says, when Jesus therefore saw his mother. Now notice, he's on the cross at this point. He's been beaten badly. Skin ripped to 
shreds, flesh. Probably some bones are exposed, to be honest. Nerves destroyed. Just exhausted as well. Because he pretty much stayed up all night from the arrest. Just stayed up all night being slapped, spit on, all this. But yet and still he's on the cross and he sees his mother and he sees the disciple whom he loves standing by, which is the apostle John. And then he says to his mother, mother, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. He says, and from that hour, from that point, that disciple, the apostle John took Mary into his own home. And so Jesus, even from the cross was being selfless. Looking out for his mother. But then another trait of Jesus is that when Jesus got angry, he got angry at the right things in the right way. For example, Jesus was angry with the self-righteous religious leaders. Because in one, in one example, they were so unloving and they were not compassionate towards somebody who had a crippled hand, a withered hand. And so they sat back on the Sabbath day and they were just waiting to criticize Jesus. They were waiting to accuse Jesus for healing a man on the Sabbath. And so Jesus was angry with them at their unloving attitude. They were just not compassionate. He didn't enjoy that at all. But there's another example of him displaying anger, which we would call righteous indignation when he would overturn the table of money changers and the seats of those who sold doves on the temple complex. See, he was angry in the right way at the right thing. What was he angry with? Because it was disrespectful to his father. They made the place of what was supposed to be a place of prayer, a house of prayer, made it to a den of thieves. And so people, these people, they, they were taking advantage of those who were coming to worship God. Jesus, he did not like that. And the scriptures tell us, by the way, as an application point for us to be angry and sin not. So we can look at Jesus here as an example. Angry at the right things in the right way. Angry at sin. But then Jesus, of course, it should be no surprise to us. He's wise. In fact, people, if you want a scripture, Mark chapter 6 verse 2 people were astonished at the wisdom that Jesus had they would try to trap him in things and he just wouldn't get caught up in their trap they were astonished at that why because of his wisdom and so if you want to see wisdom in action wisdom from God in action I would say to look at the life and ministry of Jesus Because the scriptures tell us that he became the wisdom of God for us. So if you want to know what wisdom looks like in ministry, then look at Jesus. If you want to know what wisdom looks like when it comes to people opposing you, then look at Jesus. He became the wisdom of God for us. But then we know that Jesus is also bold. For example, Jesus was bold and he was not intimidated by religious leaders. We mentioned it earlier. He didn't hold back in calling them what they were. They were hypocrites. On the outside, 
On the outside, they were whitewashed tombs, looked pretty. But on the inside, they were dead men's bones. They were nasty and dead internally, but on the outside, they looked good. They looked religious. They looked like they had a relationship with God. But they were hypocrites. Jesus pointed that out to them. But he was also bold in his rebuke of demons. He has authority, not just in the natural world, the physical world, but also in the spiritual world. He has authority because he's God and he was bold about it. He was bold in his rebuke of demons. And so anytime Jesus spoke truth in spite of the opposition, what you were seeing was boldness. But not only was he bold, he was also long suffering or patient. We we see his patience many times. For example, when dealing with his disciples, Jesus would share a parable. Or he'll teach something and his disciples didn't get it the first time. He didn't say, you know what? Get out of here. I don't have time for you. You didn't catch it the first time. I'm done with you. He didn't discard them. He's patient with them. Told them more than once that, that he was going to be crucified and be raised three days later. And for some reason it didn't click, but, but he was still patient with them. Long suffering. And one thing, one of my favorite qualities that I love about Jesus is that he saw the value in everyone. He saw the value in men. He saw the value in women. He saw the value in children. Let the little children come. Don't prevent them from coming to me, he would say. He saw the value in Jews. Saw the value in Gentiles, the non-Jews. He saw the value in social outcasts like the people with leprosy. And the lady with the flow of blood, they were social outcasts because they couldn't be a part of the religious community because of their situation. See, Jesus saw the value in the poor. The poor was, they they heard the gospel. He valued the rich. He spent time with the rich young ruler. He valued the crippled. He valued the the blind, the, the deaf. No matter what position the person held in the religious community, Jesus valued them. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He spent time with him, answered his questions, told him you must be born again. He valued him. Why did Jesus tell him that? Because he valued him. In fact, another type of religious leader was Jairus. He was a ruler of a synagogue. He valued him. And how about this? Uh, And those are positions within the religious community. But how about different positions in society? He valued their lives. For example, the centurion that came to him for help. Roman centurion, by the way. And the Romans, they, they were oppressing the Jews, Israel. And Jesus still valued the centurion even to help him out. You see, Jesus saw the value in everyone. And so in summary, when I think about Jesus and his characteristic or traits, to me, he, and this will cover it all pretty much, he, he displayed every aspect of the fruit of the Spirit in his life. Why? Because Jesus, first of all, he's a son of God. He's God himself. But then in his humanity, you, 
you, you see the, the scriptures tell us that he was filled with the spirit. So he filled with the spirit and he operated in the power of the spirit. Then, of course, as the son of God and then being fully man filled with the spirit, then, of course, he would display every aspect of the fruit of the spirit in his life. Galatians 5, 22, 23 says, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, long suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such. There's no law. Jesus displayed all of that. Agape love, sacrificial love, unselfish love. He displayed that he had joy, that this was gladness that was not based on circumstances. He displayed peace in his life. He was free from worry, disturbance. He was free from oppressive thoughts. He was content. He had contentment. You saw him being patient. We talked about that. He displayed kindness. Kindness is an eagerness to put others at ease. He displayed that. He displayed goodness. He was generous and he was open hearted. He was he also displayed faithfulness, which means he was loyal, loyal to the father. Dependable as well. And you saw him being gentle. He was humble. He was calm. He was non-threatening. And, of course, you've seen him displaying self-control. He behaved well, of course, and he was able to restrain emotions and actions and desires. And he was in harmony with the will of God. So, so he displayed every aspect of the fruit of the spirit in his life. And so those are just a few. So that's what we're, gonna, we're not going to do anymore. But we could just go on and on and on when we talk about the character of Christ, all of his traits, all of his attributes, all of his characteristics. But as we take that information in, I want you to look at 1 John 2, 6, which is the last scripture for the night. In 1 John 2, 6, it says, he who abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. You get that? He who abides in him, if you remain in Christ, you ought yourselves, ourselves, to walk or to live life just as he lived. And so, yes, this is a study about the person and work of Christ. Particularly, we're looking at the character of Christ. But, but this is something that we should take from this study. That we ourselves ought to live the way he lived or walk as he walked. That's what it's talking about, our lifestyle, the way we live. And what's sad is that there are people who claim to be Christ followers. They, they claim to be Christian, but they disagree with him in every aspect of their lives. They disagree with him in their beliefs. They disagree with him even in their teachings. There are we Christians and I... Yeah, Jesus said that, but this is how it's supposed to be interpreted. You see, when it comes to studying the word of God, when it comes to studying the Bible, when you read these various verses, there is one interpretation, but there could be many applications. In other words, how we apply it to our lives. But, but there's one meaning from the text as we read it in context. But people would take that, run with that, and they create their own doctrines. The doctrine of demons. 
They begin to say that sinful lifestyles like homosexuality is a gift from God. The Bible doesn't say that. Jesus never said that. There are people who claim to be Christian, but they disagree with them and how they live their lives. Their lifestyle doesn't look like his. Their beliefs doesn't match up with his. Their teachings don't even sound like Christ. What Bible are you reading from? What Christianity are you talking about? I want to ask some of these people. But how can that be? But just because somebody professes to be Christian doesn't mean that they are. Jesus knew that there would be false converts. The scriptures hint at it. It says, examine yourself to see if you're really in the faith. But as we close, I got to ask the question to all of us. We got to meditate upon this. As we see all these attributes and traits and characteristics of Christ, are we Christ-like in our lives? Are we Christ-like in our lives? Are we Christ-like in our thoughts? Are we like Jesus in our words? Are we like Jesus in our actions? So in other words, when, when people look at our lives, do they see meekness? When people look at our lives, do they see humility? Are we being loving like Christ? Are we walking in holiness? Because the scripture says, be holy for I am holy. Do we display kindness? Are we long suffering or patient? Are we displaying boldness? Are we utilizing the wisdom that comes from God? Are we angry at the right things in the right way? Are we being obedient to the will of the Father? Are we being selfless? Are we being submissive? Are we Christ-like in our lives? Are we working for the Lord, not for salvation, but because you are saved? You see, the words come because you have a relationship with him. You have the Holy Spirit indwelling in you. He was a worker. He wasn't lazy. He took advantage of the time that he had. He worked while it was day. Are, Are you prayerful like Christ was prayerful when he was on this earth? See, are we Christ-like in our lives? Do we see do we see the value in others? Are we being like the rest of society? Living in a we live in a throwaway society or or that baby is an inconvenience to me. Let's let's kill the baby before it has a chance to be born. Throwaway society. Oh, you burnt my toast one time. I want a divorce. (laughs) You you crashed my car that I've been working on for so long. You crashed it. You got a dent in it. I want a divorce. We live in a throwaway society. Not seeing the value in others, but Jesus did. Are we like that? Are we Christ-like? Do we see the value in others to the point where we would share the love of Christ with them? Are we Christ-like? As the worship team comes up, let's pray. Father, we thank you for who you are and what you are to us. We thank you for the example that Jesus set. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who transforms us, helps us to be more like Christ in our thoughts, words, and actions. We pray, Lord, 
for anyone, Father, who is right now, whoever's been living, they've been living a compromised life. We pray for anyone who does not have a personal relationship with you through Jesus, that you would draw them, that you convict them of sin, that you remove the spiritual blinders. And I pray for your people and in the sound of my voice, Father, that as we leave this place but not your presence, we pray that you bless the remainder of our week. Give us strength. Equip us. Empower us. Open the door for ministry and witnessing. And help us to live lives that glorify you, that are Christ-like, and lives that are ready for your son's return at any moment. We love you. We thank you. We give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this teaching from God's Word. If you have any questions, would like to request prayer, or want more information about our church and how you can experience the love and hope of Jesus Christ in your life, please visit calvaryqueencreek.org.